Hesed. Hesed. You got to say it like that. It's kind of the guttural sound. Uh, it's a really important word in the Bible. It's one of those Old Testament words that's actually helpful to know the word Hesed. Um, in the English Standard Version, we oftentimes translate it steadfast love, as we, uh, say, we said in the scriptures this morning. And that's a really a great uh, way to, to describe that word. Um, in the New, Eng- New American Standard Bible, the word is oftentimes translated as loving kindness. In the King James, it's mercy. In the Reina Valera, it's translated misericordia, which is the same thing as the King James. Um, and this is one of those words that it's so helpful in a way to know the word because it's hard to get exactly at it into the English, but it's a, an incredibly important. Uh, the late Edmund Clowney, who was the professor at Westminster, said that you could also rightly translate that word as uh, loyalty to the level of devotion. Loyalty to the level of devotion. And, and this word, uh, loyalty or devotion, it, in the Bible it's most often described of, of God's chesed. But uh, as the late Edmund Clowney says, this passage that we look at today is also a description of our chesed, our devotion to the Lord. And we know that, that uh, as people, we can be described as having devotion. I mean, this is the weekend that we remember the sacrifices of those servicemen and women who, who gave their life for their country. That's devotion. And in Texas, we all know about devotion because this is Dallas Cowboys country. Am I right? Yes, for some of you. Yeah, we even got Dallas Cowboy hats, hats on. In the southeast, it's uh, Alabama football, right? In New England, they call their fanatics, their devoted ones, patriots, right? In Mexico, it's uh, Chivas or Americas or El Tri, one of those, you know. We know what it's like to be devoted. And if you look at sports, you can take your devotion to the level of uh, fanaticism, to be a fan, a fanatic for your team. And we go crazy, we paint our faces, we, we scream, and when our team wins, we, we rush onto the football team, and all of a sudden we find ourselves pulling out the, the, the goalposts from the field and going crazy in devotion, in fanaticism. We cause riots, we're loyal, we're devoted, we're fanatics for a cause. And this is a story that we read about that is about devotion. It's about how these three mighty men, they're devoted, they're even fanatical about their king and the kingdom of Israel. These men have hesed for David and for Israel and for God. So this morning we're looking at their devotion to the king. And we're going to think about then, how is it that we can find ourselves to be devoted like that? to our God. Where are we going to find it? So first, we're looking at, at these men and, and, and looking at their devotion to the king. So the passage that we look at in 2 Samuel 23, we need to situate this. And way, the way this place is situated is, is, um, is at the end of the life of David. And it goes through this list of this honor roll of these men. If you've ever seen one of the Marvel movies, you know that at the end of the credits, 
at the end of the credits, there's always a scene, right? There's always a scene that either tells the future, like gives a, a, a snapshot of something that's going to happen, or else there's a scene that goes back to some, something that happened back in the movie in some distant related event in the story. In a way, this is kind of like the credit roll to the movie Life of David. And it's going to the scene that takes place earlier in David's life. So where the scene takes place is probably after King Saul has been killed by the Philistines. And the Philistines are rampaging across Judah. So it's either right after that or early on in David's life. That's when this scene occurs. And what happens is that these men are, David with his men, are in the cave of Adullam while the Philistines are running through Judah and they have captured Bethlehem, the city where David is from. They've taken it and David is in hiding out with some of his men. Verse 13 and 14 says, And three of the, of the thirty chief men, they went down and they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Ajulam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. You see, David, he's at this point where he's trapped in this cave, and the Philistines are down below, and perhaps there's not water in the cave, but maybe there is. Adullam is a stronghold, and so there's likely some source of water nearby. Maybe not directly in the cave, but nevertheless, David is in the desert. He's in a desert stronghold, and he gets thirsty. It wasn't until I moved uh, to El Paso a few years ago that I learned how thirsty you can get in the desert. You know, everywhere I had lived, it had been really humid, and uh, you you, you're, you're, you're fine without water for a while. But, but here, I first moved here and went hiking up in the Franklin Mountains. And with one of my friends, we, got, we brought like 250 milliliters of water, like less than a cup of water on a hike. We're like, oh, we'll be fine. Go up hiking. We come back and we get to the top. We get to the top and we're parched. Like our tongues are completely dry. And we're like, what did we do? You know, we ran back down the mountain. The first thing we did is we ran straight to the 7-Eleven to get Gatorade and water. Because you get thirsty in the desert fast. On another occasion, I uh, rode my bike for a short little, this short little ride up McKilgan Canyon and back, and by the time I got back, I was bent over, dehydrated, sprawled out on the couch, and uh, I was like, I'm thirsty! And I was, I just, horrible stomach cramps. The desert gets to you fast. When I was on the couch, I said, could somebody please get me Gatorade? Hint, hint. Matheson, my wife, somebody. Because <laughs> you get thirsty in the desert quick. But, but David, he's, he's, he's there in the cave and he's saying, oh, I wish. Oh, he longs that somebody could get him from that fresh water from the well of Bethlehem. And whereas when I was saying, hint, hint, could somebody get me some Gatorade? David, here, he's not, he's not hinting, hey, would somebody actually go down to Bethlehem and get me some water? It's that he says, longingly, he's, he's hoping. He just has this desire that he could drink from this water. but it's only a longing, it's a desire. It's not an actual command that he gives to any of his men. And yet these three mighty men, they overhear David's longing. 
And we need to know a little bit about these three men because they're pretty incredible. The first of these men, uh, earlier in the, in the passage, it says his name, the, three, the mightiest of the three mighty men, his name was Josheb Bashibeth the Tech Mennonite, which is a pretty incredible name. And uh, Josheb Bashibeth, he single-handedly wielded his spear against 800 of Israel's enemies. Single-handedly. So that's Josheb Bashibeth. And then there was Eliezer, son of Dodo. And, and one time it says that the Philistines had the men of Israel in retreat and all of the Israelites are running away. And while the men of Israel are running away, Eliezer, he, stand, he gets up, he stands his ground and he goes for it and he fights against the Philistines while all of the other Israelites are running away. And it says that he wielded his sword so much that his, he got hand cramps from fighting the Philistines. And that when everybody came back, all they found was the body of the Philistines. He single-handedly killed all those and his hand became fixed to his sword with cramps. And then there was, lastly, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And again, this is a, a story when the Philistines, they attack the Israelites and, and all of the Israelites flee. But Shammah does something incredible. There's a field of lentils. And he stands in the field of lentils and he says, these legumes are for the Lord. And he holds his grounds and he says, you shall not pass. And he defends the field from the enemies and he wipes them out. I mean, this is like Lord of the Rings type of stuff, if you've seen that movie, right? This is a picture of the Fellowship of the Ring. You've got Aragorn, you've got Gimli the Dwarf, and Legolas the Elf slaying the orcs of Mordor. Except this is real stuff. These are men who were totally devoted to God, to God's promises to Israel. They were devoted to the God of Israel and the Lord worked a great victory through these men. They were devoted to the king of Israel as well. And so when David is at this point, when, when they're in the cave with him, these mighty men who have done these great things, they hear David longing and say, oh, I wish that I could have some of this water from the well. They'll have to be told to go and get this water. They hear his desire and they say, your wish is my command. And so they overhear and what do they do? They go, these men go without being told. They just go. That's a picture of devotion. And the story then, what happens is fantastic. They rush into Bethlehem and, and they break through the Philistine camp and they make it to the well that's by the gate. And this is where all of the, 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 the head, the leaders of the Philistine army are going to be at by the gate. And so they break through the line and they get to the water and perhaps one of them standing over the well, drawing up the water. And the two other guys are on the other side, you know, fighting people off with their swords as they get the water. And then they break through back and they run all the way back to the cave, 13 miles back to the cave of Adullam. They just ran 13 miles, fought, got the water, and now they're holding this water for 13 more miles. They ran more than a, they went more than a marathon 
to get this water for David. That's loyalty. That is devotion. See, the story of these three mighty men, it is meant in a way to inspire us in our devotion to the Lord. See, Christians, we have, we have overheard our Savior, the Lord, that when he was on the mountain, when he was, before he was ascended, he didn't just wish longingly for something. He gave us a command. He gave the church a command. He said this in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus has not said longingly in a cave for something. He has commanded, he has commanded his church to make disciples of all nations, of every people and tribe and tongue. You see, devotion to the King Jesus' commands, it will place us in uncomfortable Places in uncomfortable Philistine-held territory for the mission of the gospel. It's the making disciples of all nations. That's devotion to our king. Devotion to the king may mean long-term missions and moving your family from far away from your relatives to unreached places like Indonesia and Thailand and Kazakhstan or even other places that are difficult like South Dallas or hard places. It might mean that. Making disciples of all nations. I have a friend who uh, is an engineer in Indiana, Indianapolis, and he is a friend of mine who is absolutely devoted to Christ and his kingdom and his mission. And he's been a, a financial partner and supporter and prayer for me and my ministry for ever since I've been in ministry. And one of the things that amazes me is that as an engineer, a full-time engineer, he is partnering with people financially in ministry, but he's also actively involved in ministry himself. And every week, my friend, he meets with a guy from Juarez who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church but got burned out on on church. And every week they meet and they study the Gospel of Mark. That's devotion to the kingdom of Christ. That's devotion to his mission. It's giving generously, but it's also saying, I'm going to get in to the ministry and do it myself as well. Even when it takes us into places that are uncomfortable. Places that cost us time, money, comfort, and risk. And that's what these men do. These three mighty men, they risk their lives because of their loyalty to David and to God. And this is why what David does next in some ways is kind of shocking. So, exhausted and thirsty, these men, they bring back their precious water to David. They bring it back. This costly water. At verse 16, look at what he says. Look what he does. The three mighty men broke, uh, broke through the camp of the Philistines. They drew water out of the camp and they carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it and he Instead, he poured it out 
to the Lord. I mean, David, what are you doing? How inconsiderate, how rude. Do you not know what these men just did for you? Do you know what they did? And yet he says, explains exactly why he doesn't drink the water. He says in verse 17, Far be it from me that I should drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives. Far be it from me. See, David is a humble man and he knows, he knows that he's not worthy to drink water that came at the cost of these men's, these men, their blood, is what he says. It was too costly for him to drink this water. And so he pours out the costly water that costs as precious as, as this men's blood. He pours it out instead as an offering to the Lord. Saying, only Yahweh, only the Lord is worthy of this water. And so he pours it out to the Lord as an offering to him. So we see that even in this, that David himself is also a king who is devoted to the Lord. And this act of his devotion shows that he is devoted to his mighty men as well. Just think about it. What on earth would inspire the loyalty of these mighty men to David? It's that they knew that David was ultimately devoted to God and and therefore also devoted to them. See, loyalty inspires loyalty and devotion inspires devotion. But the question that we must ask ourselves is, whose devotion inspires devotion? Whose loyalty inspires loyalty? Does our loyalty to the Lord then inspire him to be loyal and devoted to us? Or is it that his loyalty, his hesed, his steadfast love and faithfulness empowers our loyalty? It is that. His loyalty, his devotion empowers ours. I'm in a book group with a few guys and we were talking about justification by faith not by our works and we were talking about how counterintuitive this is to life in our world, life in society it's not only just counterintuitive to religious experience it's counterintuitive to the way our world works I mean think about it, if you're a PhD student you have to produce research, you have to get published and if you do all of those things then and you prove you're devoted and you're loyal, then you will be accepted as a doctor. I mean, the same thing goes for when you're in seventh grade. Do your heart, do your work, and then you will pass. Or in your jobs, you produce and you perform, and if you produce and you perform and you demonstrate you're devoted, then maybe you'll get promoted. Maybe you'll get retirement. See, the way our world works is that you produce, you perform, you demonstrate your devotion, and if you do, then perhaps you will receive loyalty in return. But the gospel is that apart from any of our works, we have been justified. That apart and before we have done anything to be loyal to Christ, he demonstrates his loyalty to us. And if we think that it's about, first and foremost, our performance and our duty, and our, our doing, 
This will lead us to burn out. And this will lead us even on the fast track to throwing ourselves into our sin. And we are called to a life of devotion to God. But we have to remember that for us to be devoted to King Jesus and to his mission, that we have to know his devotion to us. That's how you and I will find the power to be devoted like these mighty men. It's knowledge of the king's devotion to you. You see, in David's life in this passage, that he inspired devotion from a diverse range of men. Most of them, if you look at this list, most of them were from Judah, but others were from across Israel. Some of them were even Gentiles. You look at verse 37. And you notice something about this list. There were Zelek, the Ammonite, Nahari of Berat, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gereb, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite. You remember him. Uriah, the Hittite. You remember what he did? He was fully devoted to David. He was fully devoted to Israel. And yet David in this situation demonstrated that he actually exploited Uriah's loyalty and devotion. And what he did, remember, is that he sent Uriah with the letter that was his own death warrant. And at the end of this list, we look at this list and we are reminded, we are reminded that David was a sinner. We are reminded that he was the king who was not always devoted to his people. And by contrast, we are reminded in this about great David's greater son. The true and greater David, which is Christ. That David's life points us to that. We are pointed to him. And that in this we see that the David, uh, David's son, Jesus, he is the one that would sit on Christ on the throne of David forever. That King Jesus ultimately is the one, is the great king who is absolutely devoted to his people and never, never exploits that. Jesus is the king who's devoted to his people. See, we talk about devotion to God, and that is very important. That's what this passage shows us. It is about these men's devotion. But ultimately, what we must remember is that the primary truth of Scripture is that God has steadfast love. He has his hesed. He has his devotion and loyalty to his people, to us. This is what the Psalms remind us over and over again. Psalm 117 or Psalm 118 or or Psalm 136. They blast the truth of God's steadfast love, his devotion to us. Psalm 136 puts it this way. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out of from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the sea of into two 
for his steadfast love endures forever. And he made Israel to pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his host into the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. You see what the Psalms is going through is a litany of God's redemptive history. And line by line he is saying why it is that he has redeemed us. Because his devotion, his steadfast love endures for his people forever. We are redeemed by the king because he is devoted to us in spite of the fact that our natural self is weak, afraid, and devoted to anything but God. You see, it's not that we, we actually weren't loyal enough. We were actually disloyal. So to speak, we were those who were in the Philistine garrison. We were against God and against the king. But Jesus poured out his blood as an offering for our sin. See, in the new covenant, this litany of God's steadfast love endures forever, it continues until it finds its highest expression in Christ. And remember, two days before Jesus goes to the cross, what happens? Two days before he goes to the cross, he's at the town of Bethany and he's eating with a guy named Simon the leper. And Mark 14, 3 records it this way. And as he was reclining at table, a woman came. She had an alabaster flask of essential oils. She had an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she poured it over Jesus' head. That's devotion like these mighty men. That's devotion, giving the most costly thing she has. And everybody says, oh, that's a horrible thing that she did. She should have given it to the poor. But Jesus receives it. Why? Because he is the one who is worthy to receive that costly sacrifice that's poured out. He's the one who receives it because it is the anointing, the perfume that is the anointing before his burial. And he was the one who was fully devoted to God. And the next day, what happens is he celebrates with his 12 disciples in the upper room. And this is what he says. He broke bread and he took it. And he said, take, this is my body. And then what does he say next? Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave the cup to his men and he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And he went to the cross the very next day where his body was broken and his blood was poured out to God for our sin. You see, David poured out the water to the Lord in devotion to him. But Jesus poured out his blood as an offering to God. He was fully devoted, entirely devoted to God. And being devoted to God, this man, the man, Christ Jesus, is also devoted to us. Because he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
He poured out his blood for us. Jesus is the king who is utterly, totally devoted to you and to me. That's what this Lord's table is all about. When we come to the table, we are reminded that Christ communicates to us his hesed, his love, his devotion, that his blood was the one that was poured out for you and for me. That's the gospel truth. That the king is devoted to you and to me by his blood that has been poured out for us. You may have seen uh, that movie called True Grit. We talked about it in uh, a sermon preview the other day. But you know the story, True Grit, it's a, it was a, it's a western movie. Uh, an old one with John Wayne, but there's a newer one as well. And in this, it's the story of this 14-year-old girl in the Wild West. And what she does is her father is killed by a drunk. And now she uh, hires an old lawman and uh, braggadocious Texas ranger. And what she does is she chases down her father's killer. And with these three men, they become a ragtag group that gets grit and determination against all of the obstacles to bring this man to justice. This little girl has true grit. She has absolute determination. And so my question is to you, you who are young, you youth, Luke, Caleb, Clarissa, Brian, Sydney, Aaron, Justine, how are you going to have true grit in following Christ when you are young? When there is challenges that you will face, where will you find the determination and the devotion to follow Christ? It comes from this. It is the conviction that Jesus is absolutely and totally devoted to you. That he poured out his blood for you. That's where you're going to find grit and determination and devotion in what he has done for you. One of my dear friends from seminary, he was a pastor from Mombasa, Kenya. And while we were in seminary, a number of pastors in his town were killed by Muslims. And it was not a safe time for pastors in Mombasa. But he was planning to go back to start a seminary there. And I look at him and I say, wow, what kind of devotion to God. There's another guy from seminary who came off of a plane from Beijing who was under house arrest for, for being a pastor in the Chinese house church movement. And I look at these guys and I say, wow, what kind of devotion to Christ. These men, these were mighty men who have inspired me. And yet, as we, see, we hear about these stories of, of Christians throughout the world who have absolute devotion to Christ, we have to remember that the gospel is not about what we do. The gospel is not the devotion that we have for God, as necessary as that is. Brian Chappell, who's a uh, pastor and former president of Covenant Seminary, he had a conversation with a Chinese seminary student who was involved in the house church movement in China. And he said this. This is, this is what they, their conversation was. He said, the Chinese uh, pastor said, in my family, 
the gospel was something you did. You learned the Bible and you behave like a Christian. That's what it meant to be a Christian. And my father was imprisoned by the communists because he was a surgeon who believed in Christ. That's devotion. And the soldiers asked, do you believe in Jesus? He said, I do. They said, do you want others to believe in Jesus? And he said, yes, I do. And then they said, well, if others believe, they will not be loyal to Chairman Mao. And so they put him in prison. And they didn't just put him in prison, they put all of his four brothers and sisters in prison as well. And yet this is what the guy said next. He said of his father who was in prison for his devotion to Christ. He said this. He did what a good Christian should do. He, his suffering became his identity. It's what made him a Christian. And not him only, but his siblings too. And I admired them. I respect what they did. But as I look at their children, my seven cousins, only one of them is a believer today. And Brian Chappell asked him, well, what happened? And the Chinese pastor said this. He said, I struggled too to be a Christian being raised in a home where the gospel was something you did. And so he decided that he needed to suffer too. So he quit his career as a computer engineer and he went to seminary in the United States to prepare to suffer as a pastor back in the Chinese house church movement. And this is what the man said. He said, but the gospel was still something that you do. So I studied hard and I made good grades and I hated church and I fought with my wife. As a computer engineer, I perceived that the gospel was about getting the right performance out of my operating system. I had the right information and I even believed in God. But I was empty, miserable, and terrified that I could not live up to the expectations of those expecting me to return. He says one morning he was heading off to a seminary class after he had been in a fight with his wife that got physical. And he's going down the stairs and at the base of the stairs, going away from his apartment, he collapsed on the ground. And he cried out to God. He said, I cried out to God, please God, change my heart. And the only way I knew to explain what I was asking for was as a computer engineer. I had been trying to be a Christian by getting the right documents and performance out of me. And finally I said, God, I need you to change my operating system. I asked Jesus that he would give me the peace that he would love me despite my performance. I asked Jesus that he would give me the peace that he would love me despite my performance. You see, when the gospel is about what we do, it's about performance that we do, our devotion... It leads us to burnout and it will cause us to the next generation of our children to run away from it. But the gospel is what this man finally, this Chinese pastor finally came to on the ground was that Christ can love us, that he loves us despite our performance. And there we find peace. Peace. 
The gospel is this, that Christ himself poured out his blood for you and for our sins. And that he is fully devoted to you. Despite our performance. And when we know that, he works peace. And the Holy Spirit pours out that love into our hearts. He pours it into our hearts so that we will find the power and the strength. Knowing that we are loved. The strength to be devoted to Christ. I love the way the psalmist says it. He says, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And then the psalmist responds by saying this. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. And I shall look and triumph on my enemies. You see, his devotion to you is never ending. By his blood that was poured out for us. We know he's devoted to us. He's on our side. So go this week in devotion to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear the King. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would pour out that love into our hearts. The conviction of your devotion to us that we have been forgiven. And may that conviction go deep into our bones this very week so we may go and serve you when it's difficult, when it's costly, knowing that no matter what happens, you are in fact on our side, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.